Luke chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, I want to encourage you to just look in the table of contents and find the page number. And you'll be able to find the book of Luke. Chapter 6, our sermon this morning is going to focus on verses 37 through the end of the chapter, and so I'm going to read the section that we're going to focus on, and then I'm I'm going to preach it, by God's help. Luke 6, starting in verse 37. Judge not... And you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? and not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the man who hears and does not do them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Father, as we come into this text this morning, we ask that you would speak to us in a way that only you can speak to us. We recognize, God, that we are a people who quickly build foundations that don't last. We quickly try to live our lives in ways that look more impressive than they actually are for the praise of man, 
all to not make it through that storm. God, we pray that we would build our lives in a way that would matter, in a way that would last. That means that we would build our lives on this foundation that we just read about. I pray that we would hear your word today and that we would apply it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on the theme, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. It was 2 a.m. and a dog was hollering. Kind of like the way we hear the babies right now. (laughs) Neighbors started looking out the windows. I mean, it wasn't a bark. I didn't say he was howling. I said he was hollering. So neighbors finally start coming down to find out what's going on with this hollering animal. And they find right next to the dog is the, man, uh, the dog's owner, just kind of staring at the dog. People ask, why is this dog hollering? The owner replies, well, he's hollering for two reasons. Number one, he's sitting on a nail. And number two, he's not hurting bad enough to do anything about it. And so he just sits there and hollers. You know, some of us, I think, are in pain, pain that maybe is self-inflicted, accidental pain, pain that has been brought upon you against your will, and we are hollering in life. We're hollering, and the reality is, is our hollering is making everybody else around us miserable. The irony is that we just sit there. We don't actually do anything about it. Maybe we don't know what to do. But we just sit there and we criticize others. We become more and more angry in life. More and more critical in life. The main oomph that I feel in this passage as I read it is Jesus essentially saying, don't waste your life in this way. Look at the last line there in verse 49. He says, when the stream broke against this house, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. So many people are building their lives with no real foundation. They have a faith, but their faith is merely a facade. They say that they love, but they really stand in judgment of others. They say that they believe, but there is no real fruit 
in their life. They cry out, Lord, Lord. But they don't do what he says. They have what I am going to call a faulty faith. It's the kind of faith that will not survive the floods of life. The kind of faith that will not survive the storms of life. I want to ask you this morning, is your faith storm resistant? Can your life survive the floods? Jesus here is painting a number of different pictures for us to show us what what it looks like to just simply live with pain in our life, to be critical and judgmental of others, and to do nothing about it, and to ultimately waste 60 years, 70 years, 80 years of life, wasted when the floods come. Four different lessons that really could be four different sermons, but I'm drawing them all together under this same theme. They have to do with the life that matters. Don't waste your life with this, what I'm going to call, faulty faith. Let me just break down these four lessons for you. Number one. Don't waste your life with a fault-finding faith. Number two, don't waste your life with a fool-following faith. Number three, don't waste your life with a fruitless faith. And number four, don't waste your life with a faith that has no foundations. Let me try briefly to go through each one of these lessons. First lesson, don't waste your life with a fault-finding faith. That's a lot of Fs. I did that intentionally, but it didn't take much work. They were just all right there. Look at verse 37. He starts off by saying, judge not. Oh, we all like that one, don't we? (laughs) Uh, Judge not. She can stab you in the back, steal from you, gossip about you, and kiss your boyfriend. And when you say something, she says, don't judge me. (laughs) We love that, that one, don't we? when it applies to everybody else around us. Is that what Jesus is getting at? I don't think so. Ironically, we're told elsewhere that we should judge. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that we should judge unrepentant sin in the community of believers. Uh, or in, in uh, Matthew 18. We should judge those who Uh, belong to the representative body of Christ. We should be the judge, determine, as it were, who represents Jesus in this world. There's kinds of judgment that we're actually called to do. As a matter of fact, I don't want to get ahead of myself too much here, but Jesus, in this very passage, actually tells us how to judge. So this word judge is is like a lot of words, and that means uh, or it, it has multiple meanings or applications. The kind of judgment that Jesus is referencing here is the kind of judgment that was very prevalent in Israel at the time, this brittle, critical judgment of religious leaders toward everybody else. 
the kind of judgment that is just simply looking for things to criticize in their neighbor. The kind of judgment that, that just simply sits back and watches everybody else and, and tries to figure out what it is that people are doing wrong. Uh, Jesus says, don't do that. <laughs> don't be like these brittle, critical, religious leaders of the scribes and Pharisees. I think of a story where a woman is caught, caught in adultery. Oh, they're so happy to find this woman caught in adultery because they can now accuse her publicly. They pull her out. There is no sense of, oh, I, I, I feel terrible about this situation. There's no sense of, this is heartbreaking, There's, there, there are children involved. There's no sense of pain in it. They are happy to accuse this woman of adultery. They're critical. They're brittle. Jesus says, don't be like that. Judge not, lest you be judged. Condemn not, or you will be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Imagine if God took that sort of disposition with you. Imagine if God criticized every single one of your shortcomings. Imagine if the Christian life was a life lived where every wrong little step we took, we, we sleep in, a little, little, little late to church, uh, which some of you just walked in, um, <laughs> We, uh, we slip up, we fall, we look at the wrong thing, we say the wrong thing, we lose our temper. Imagine if, if our religion was built around a God who just sat like this, looking for our shortcomings and criticizing them and bringing guilt. Oh, who is the accuser in the Scriptures? It ain't God. It ain't Jesus. It's Satan. Whose father are these religious people who are accusers? It ain't God. This is a fault-finding kind of faith. Imagine if it was God's disposition toward you to find fault. I love the old quote that's attributed to some pastor hundreds of years ago, as he sees the, 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 the criminals being led by to their execution, and everybody's scowling at them and throwing things at them and laughing at them and mocking them and accusing them, and his words are, there, but the grace of God go I. When we hear the accusers come along, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you, did you see what the neighbor did? Can you believe what's happening with this individual in the church? There but the grace of God go I, is the Christian response. We are not a religion based on accusations. We are not a faith that is fueled by condemnation. We are a faith about grace. We are people who have received the kindness of God. God who has, in Christ, 
done away with our shortcomings. Oh, there but the grace of God. Go I. We should be concerned when it's easier for us to explain to somebody else how our spouse is a thorn in the flesh than a blessing and a gift. Oh, so often we are most critical with those we are closest to. So often the gifts of friendship and spouse and relationship and boyfriend, girlfriend, the people in your life end up being the thorns in your life. If everybody around you that you're close with is the thorn in your flesh, do you think that they're the problem? <laughs> Some of you just nodded at me. Yep. <laughs> Taking me out of my game here. <laughs> what he's saying here in, in, in this is is if, if you are one that has received grace, and we give grace, we, we, we show the kindness as recipients of kindness. There's a sense here, and I want to be careful because I, I, I don't want to confuse this with some kind of prosperity message. And often this is. Often this passage, especially the, the latter part there, give, it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Some of you could just quote that like this. The churches you grew up in, right? That has nothing to do with tithes and offerings. <laughs> now, we should give to the church, and there is a blessing in that. But this is much broader than just as it relates to tithes and offerings. This is actually a reference to our enemies. This is coming out of that same breath of love your enemies. What he's saying is, is the way that you operate in this world is the way that God operates with you. Now, this isn't a works-oriented salvation, but it's just simply this recognition of uh, you are forgiven, and you forgive. And as you forgive, you're forgiven. In a real sense, what it's saying is the way we act in this world truly does shape the way we are treated in this world. If you act in a brittle and critical manner in this world, how do you think you're going to be treated in this world? And as it relates to God, to whom much is given, much is required. So don't waste your life with this fault-finding kind of faith. Secondly, don't waste your life with a fool-following faith. Now, these all blend together. He keeps going deeper. He keeps pulling back the layers. And he shows us that these scribes and Pharisees, which are modeling this critical, judgmental approach to life, are actually fools. And the problem is some of you, he says, are following them. A fool following faith. If I were to say, hey, I, I, I uh, want to give you a tour of New York City. We're going to go tomorrow. Hop in my car tomorrow morning. So Monday morning rolls around. You hop in uh, my, my, my car and we hop on 95 and we start heading south toward Richmond. We pass D.C. and you're like, wait a second. I'm trying to remember the map. 
I think New York is north. We're heading toward Richmond. We get down to the Carolinas. And you start asking questions. Are we going to New York? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know where New York is? My simple point is this. If you don't know where the destination is, you can't lead anybody anywhere. Jesus illustrates this problem in two different ways. Both of these illustrations use the eyes as the key reference. First, there's blindness. Secondly, there's a log in an eye. He's, he's pointing us to the eyes. He wants us to think about the eyes. If we're going to live a life that matters, we need to be able to see correctly. The first illustration has to do with blindness. It's a simple illustration. He says, the blind leading the blind leads to their destruction in verse 38. They fall into a pit. The application is simply this. Who are you following? Who are you following? Uh, who are you learning from in life? Are they fruitful or are they fools? Now, uh, he, as, he, as he explains this in verse 40, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. First, in this context, the disciple only knew of the world what his teacher told him. This is prior to the internet. This is before a, a lot of classical education. Meaning you literally would find a teacher, and what you knew about the world was completely based on what this person told you. And once you were taught, according to this teacher, you would become like that teacher and pass that knowledge on to others, even if it was foolish knowledge. Now, on one hand, I do think Jesus is hinting at himself right here as the great teacher. We can't dismiss this from Christ himself. A disciple, when fully taught, becomes like, I can picture Jesus pointing to himself, his teacher. But as we think of these false teachers in the world, these fools that we follow, today we're typically not following an individual wherever they go and learning everything about life from one person. We've got to think hard about who your leaders really are. You've got to think, think pretty, pretty hard about who you are learning life from. And they might not even, even be a, a flesh and blood individual that you meet up with. I think a lot of times we take our cues more from the world than we do from the church, from our Christian friends, from our colleagues, from flesh and blood people right around us. Who are you following in this world? You cannot learn about a godly marriage from celebrities. <laughs> you cannot learn about the gift of singleness from most music. The streets might teach you how to be tough, but they will not teach you how to love 
your enemy? Netflix, video games, they might entertain. But they're not going to teach you how to carve out time to be in God's Word. They're not going to teach you how to hunger for a deeper prayer life. We've got to ask ourselves this question, who are you learning from? Who is teaching you in society? Who are you opening up your minds to? Family, as you learn from these people or these things, these ideas, these philosophies, we've got to let these words stick with us. You will become like your teacher. How can we combat these fools? Number one, get yourself a mentor. Find a godly man or woman, preferably older than you, who's been through some life. By the way, I am so happy for the senior saints in this church who have experienced more life than me. Some of the senior saints in this church have only been a believer for two or three years. And I value and crave conversations with them. Because you can teach me something about life and about applying the Christian life at your stage of life. Find a mentor. Find someone. Get around them. Probably someone a little different than you. Someone who is fruitful. Someone who is faithful. Find a mentor and meet with them. Number two, submit to the local church. I believe that Jesus has the local church in mind as he thinks of discipleship, as he thinks of teaching. The local church, we are to be a community that shapes one another. We are to be examples and models for one another. If you're in this room right now and you're not part of the local church, I want to encourage you to take the next basics class. Learn what it means to commit to a local church and to be present. And to not just be present, but learn from each other, and not just learn from each other, but model what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ to the world around you. I say this next piece with fear and trembling, but it has to be said. 1 Peter 5 says elders are to be examples to the flock. Meaning, God calls me to be a model in a unique way. God calls Elder Eric and Elder Montrell to be a model in a unique way. Brothers, we got, I I said, I say this with fear and trembling. We ought to recognize the weightiness of what it means to be an example to the flock. Brothers and sisters, if you ever see us slipping up, please feel free to come to us. And feel free to use 1 Peter 5 when you come to us and say, Brother Joel, Montrell, Eric, you're to be an example to the flock. And what the, the way I saw you speak to your wife would not necessarily be a good example. You see what I'm saying? We need mentors. We need to be in the church. We need to understand who it is that, that we are to follow. Now, uh, as elders, and I say this humbly, or as fellow church members, we're only as good as we are following Christ ourselves. 
Meaning Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Essentially what Paul is saying is if I, if I stop following Christ, or if there's any area in my life where I'm not actually following Christ, well then, don't follow me there. That would just be a waste of your time. Don't waste your life following fools who don't follow Christ. As Christians, our goal is not to follow any single individual. Our goal is to follow Christ. And Jesus Himself says in verse 40, a disciple, when fully trained, will become like His teacher. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to follow fools. He takes this further in the next couple of verses. As He uses another analogy. He goes on in verse 41, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own? Sometimes because Jesus is so serious, we forget he had a little bit of a sense of humor. This picture he creates of a log just kind of hanging out of your eye. That's grotesque. And here you are concerned about this guy with a little speck, like maybe some sawdust in his eye. And you're kind of dragging your log all over the place. Blood and goop is coming out of it. And you're like, hey, can I, come here, come here. You got a speck in your eye, you know. Let me get that for you. That fool walking around with a speck in his eye. This is the picture he has in his mind when he thinks of these scribes and Pharisees. When he thinks of us as we live in this critical, wasteful sort of fashion. Why is it that you are so concerned about some little small screw-up in somebody else and you are ignoring this massive log of a problem in your own life. Why is it that we ignore the unrepentant nature in our own soul and cling to and love our sin, yet we love to prop ourselves up and sit back and judge everybody else all around us? the woman caught in adultery. They bring her before Jesus, and I think, like I've already said, they were probably happy to find somebody who was sinning. They bring this woman before Jesus, and they accuse her. Now, they are completely ignoring the fact that they were probably lusting after her themselves. Let me ask you a question. How did they know that she was committing adultery? Somebody had to been been watching. <laughs> Somebody was peeping through the wall to try to find her in this act. The text says she was caught in the act. Oh, they don't repent of the fact that they yank her out of there, don't even let her put her clothes on and pull her out in the public and accuse her before all people. How can you care about the speck in this woman's eye? As you've got this log hanging out of your own eye. Those who have no sin, Jesus says, go ahead and pick up the first stone. And with that, the stones 
began to drop. How is it that we should rightly judge others? Jesus says it here. You hypocrite, take the log out first. Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't you love this text? He's not saying that you should not care about the speck. He's not saying that it is not an issue and that they don't need somebody to point it out and help them get the speck out. But what he's simply saying is this, is deal with your own sin first. The preacher Evie Hill told a story of a woman who came forward after a sermon and told him, I'm going to hell. And he said, well, can we meet tomorrow and talk about that? And she said, absolutely. She showed up in his office. And so he sat down with her. And he said, so tell me about this whole you're going to hell business. What have you done so wrong that you believe God cannot forgive? And so he said she began to talk about her life and the mistakes she's made, the sins she's committed. And Pastor Evie Hill said, I don't mean to interrupt, but can I just share a little something from my own life? He said, I am the pastor of the great Missionary Baptist Church. The, the great Dr. Evie Hill. Let me tell you who I am. He said, I began listing the sins that I had committed. Not ha I wish I never committed these sins. Sins I, I wish I could take back. He said, I just started listing some sins in my life, and I got about halfway through of the first list of sins that I could think of, and she stopped me, and she said, I want to be saved. <laughs> Listen, what is it, what does it look like to point somebody to Christ? It looks like being real with ourselves. It begins with us recognizing we got a log, we got a log in our own eyes. It begins with humbly falling before Christ and confessing our own sin. It is confession of sin in your own life that now makes you worthy of being able to help someone else. Your tone changes. The way you talk about their sin is different. Oh, there but the grace of God go I. Get the log out of your own eye, Jesus says, before you seek to help the brother or the sister with the speck in theirs. The third lesson is this. Don't waste your life with a fruitless faith. Don't waste your life with a fruitless faith. When I first moved onto McCullough Street right here, I had a backyard, I dug it out, and I put a tomato plant in my soil. And I thought, I'm going to grow some tomatoes and never want again. And so I'm watering my plant and putting stuff on it, and the plant sprouts up, a couple little sick, nasty tomatoes grow on it, and it dies. And I keep watering, and I keep throwing more stuff on it. And my neighbor, the, the, the late Miss Palmer, who I miss dearly, 
is standing across the fence looking at me, working on my tomato plant. She's got this beautiful tomato plant, by the way, all right? She's got tomatoes all over it. She's just standing there, probably eating a tomato, looking at me. <laughs> and uh, she, says, um, she says, it's not what you're doing that's the problem, it's the soil that's the problem. She said, you need to get some, I forget even what it was, lime or something like that. You've got to put this in the soil. And you know what? She was right. The next year I tried it again, following her instructions of how to care for the soil, and I actually got a tomato plant. So often in our lives, we are focusing on the external. We're focusing on the, 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 the problems in our life. We're focusing on the mistakes that we are making in our lives. And I wish we could all hear Miss Palmer's voice this morning as she says, it's not what you're doing that's the problem, it's the soil that's the problem. Well, this is essentially what Jesus says in this next illustration. It's very simple. He says, good fruit doesn't come from sick trees. Sick trees, bad trees, produce bad fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. In verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does it look like to waste your life? This third lesson simply says this. As we dig deeper, we discover that it is a waste to just simply focus on these external actions like the scribes and Pharisees do. We need to get to the soil. What is the soil? The soil is our heart. From the heart, that's where our problems come from. From the soil, we produce a healthy tree or an unhealthy tree. I want to ask you this morning, how is the fruit in your life that you're producing? What does it look like to produce good fruit? Are you desiring to be in God's Word more? Do you have an eagerness to pray are you growing in love? Are you growing in sexual purity? Are you growing in honesty? I might ask the kids in the room, if you have an opportunity to cheat at school, do you take that opportunity or do you resist out of a desire for honesty? How are you doing at work? Do you work hard only when people are looking? Or do you work hard out of principle, the principle of the matter that God is looking. Are you able to rest? Have you ever thought of good sleep as fruit? Are you able to sleep trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and not worrying? Are you increasing in your awareness of your own sin? Are you learning what it means to listen to others and to listen to God's Word? Do you love people? Are you growing in love for people who are different from you, from a different culture, a different ethnicity? Are you producing fruit? Now, some of you might say, Joel, I'm producing fruit, but it is like really small, tiny little apples that hardly have any flavor. Like it's super immature. Praise God for that. Listen, new 
Christians produce immature fruit. Praise God for that. Your fruit might not be as luscious as you would like, but fruit is fruit. Praise God for the fruit that you do see in your life and ask God, why is it that I don't see more of this? In what ways do I need to be cultivating the soil of my own heart? What am I not believing? What do I need to change about my understanding of this world and reality? What is it in Scripture that God has provided for me that I've been resistant? In what way might we develop more fruit? The Christian life is not about behavioral modification. It is about a heart transplant. How is it that we get a new heart? How is it that we are washed clean? Well, Jesus Christ lived the most fruitful life you can imagine. All the fruit that we should have produced, He produced all of that and more. And then what He did was He died on the cross for the salvation of sinners. He died for fruitless individuals. For those of us who are sick. For those of us who are weak. For those of us who are downright bad. Jesus Christ died for fruitless plants. Three days later, He rose from the dead. He calls to us, repent, trust in Him, and what we are given is His fruit, His righteousness, a clean slate, the forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Spirit does a miracle within us, and the miracle is called regeneration. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new desires. He redoes the soil of our lives. This is what it looks like then to produce fruit in life. We come to Jesus Christ through the gospel that saves. How many of you are glad this morning that there is more grace in God than sin in us? His grace is greater than all our sin. His, his mercy is greater than all of our mess. Praise God that He is a God who is taking sick plants and turning them into fruitful, fruitful trees. The Garden Church. What a great name for a church. Last lesson. Don't waste your life on a faith with no foundation. Don't waste your life on a faith that has no foundation. I've told you before, some years ago, I worked on a construction crew building new houses. And we had the fun part. We would come into this new site, and the, the foundation would be laid, and it would be nice and level, and, and we would just, it was hard work, don't get me wrong. I had to carry these two-by-tens. But we, we had the fun part of like putting down a floor, building walls, framing out the house. I was always so glad when I would show up at a new site that I was not on the crew that had to lay down the foundation. That would not have been the fun part. As we get into Jesus' conclusion of his entire sermon, what we see first is that Jesus knows how to close the sermon. He comes up with this really great analogy, and he preaches it. I think the organ probably started playing. 
He starts off by saying words are just words. There are, there are those who come to him and say, they say, Lord, Lord. He says, why do you say, Lord, Lord, but you don't, you don't do what I tell you? What he's saying there is, if, if you say that Jesus is Lord, you say yes to that, then you've got to say no to sin. We could turn that around, though. If you say yes to sin, then you are, by the very nature of saying yes to sin, you're saying no to Jesus as Lord of my life. Why, he says, do you say Lord, Lord, but you don't live in obedience? And then here comes his analogy. In verse 47, let me show you, he says, what it looks like to hear my words and to not live in obedience. Verse 48 through the end of the chapter. He tells a story of two houses. The first house is built by a man who starts off at the foundation. He takes the time to dig the foundation. He then lays the foundation of the house and he builds his house. A flood rises and this house survives the flood. Second man comes along. He says, I don't have time for the foundation. I'm just going to put down a floor right on the ground and some walls and a roof. Now, for a moment, both houses seem fine. For a moment, both men are living in their house peacefully. For a moment, the man who spent all this time laying the foundation, he's looking out the window and he's like, that guy's doing actually pretty good. Well, how many of you have looked across the aisle at those who are not following Christ and you think, you know what, they are actually living a, 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 a better life than I am. They got their house up quicker than me. Uh, there was this rainstorm. They had, they had a roof over their head already and I was still working on my foundation. Like I said, when I worked construction, I was so glad I was not on the foundation crew. Do you know what it's like to build a foundation? To build a foundation means you've got to first clear out the trees. You've got to dig for hours. You've got to dig this hole that's the size of a full basement. You've got to pour gravel down at the bottom of that and then slowly begin cinder block upon cinder block building a foundation. It takes hours and hours is some of the hardest work. And you know what? A foundation is not very impressive. That dude got his house up by the time I dug my hole. Right? Nobody comes along and says, oh wow, what an impressive foundation you've built. Nobody's driving down the highway and says, wow, they're really making progress over there with that wonderful foundation. The people that build foundations, they, they, they don't get any accolades. The people that build foundations, it's not impressive to those who are around. Who is it that's impressive? Well, it's the guy over here who got his house up really quick. He's looking good. And while the sun's out, everything is fine. But how many of y'all know that our, our faith is not tested during the sunshine. 
Our faith is not tested when the skies are blue and everything is going well. Our faith, according to Jesus Christ, is tested when the floods begin to rise. Our faith is tested when the storm of life comes along. Listen, if you just want to impress the world, forego the foundation. If you just want to impress the world and get a lot of likes, present as impressive. Present as getting something done. Don't worry about all of that hard work of preparation. Nobody cares about that stuff. As a matter of fact, people that are spending time trying to obey Jesus Christ often move slower in life. Because it takes longer to do it right than to get it done. People who are obeying Jesus in life, 90% of the time, their work is spent on their knees, in their closets, fighting against the devil, the temptation, the sins that are in, uh, all around them and tempting them, and that gets no praise. I recently heard someone describe an old woman who passed as living a life that was unremarkable. By worldly standards, she lived a life that was unremarkable. And that is true. But where this person was wrong is they didn't know the foundation that she had been building her whole life. I tell you what, she built a foundation for almost 90 years in her life of following Jesus Christ, not just hearing His words, but doing them. Listening, living, loving Jesus Christ. And she has now survived the greatest storm of all times. If you want to be impressive, forego wisdom and just simply gratify your desires. Look impressive. Don't prepare. Don't do it the right way. Do it the fastest way. But I'm telling you, if your foundation is built on achievement, it will be gone when your fans leave. If your foundation is built on even your family, it will be gone when your family passes, or when your kids turn against you, or when your spouse leaves you, or when your mother and father pass. If your foundation is built on your own good works, it will crumble under your pride. If your foundation is built on rule-keeping, it will crumble under your critical spirit. If your foundation is built on making a name for yourself, it will crumble as you look down on everybody else. Is there a foundation that lasts? God's Word says that there is. And that foundation is the Word of Christ. How firm! A foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The song, song says, what more can be said than to you He has said. He said it. We listen to the Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, and we follow Him. On Christ, this solid rock, 
we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There is a foundation in Jesus Christ. And everybody in this room is invited to build your life on this foundation. There is plenty of room on the foundation of that, that Christ offers us. And it is, church, the only foundation that will last. How is it that his foundation will last? Well, the greatest storm of all is a storm that none of us have yet faced. And that is the storm of death. The foundation of Jesus Christ has proven to last beyond death. This foundation of Jesus Christ has been built through death. As Jesus died taking the sins of the world on Himself, coming through the other end, rising from the dead three days later, He comes and invites us, build on this foundation. And you will find a foundation that will survive every storm this world has to offer, and it will survive the ultimate storm of death. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the foundation of Jesus Christ. We ask, God, that you would help us to not just say, Lord, Lord, but that we would build our lives in obedience to Jesus Christ. Destroy any judgmental, critical, log-in-the-eye, fruitless, religion that we have given ourselves over to. God, I pray that you would create in us a new heart from that soil growing fruit-bearing trees of kindness, of love, building our lives on the foundation of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.